Tony Ganser from 90.3 WCPN. I say this at the beginning of every event like this, but your questions are some of the most interesting things that we deal with at these events. So uh, there will be a time for those questions. So if we don't get to something that you're really passionate about or you're just curious, there will be time for that and we welcome that and we won't bite. So to start, I'd actually like our panelists to uh, introduce themselves, starting with Joe. Hi, thanks, Tony. Uh, my name's Joe Bryan. I'm, uh, thank you very much. I brought, my, I brought my own cheering crew. I feel a little bit like Elton John here, so excuse me if I don't, I probably won't break in the song, at least anytime soon. Although I do do a mean, mean rendition of Stairway to Cleveland, if you remember that song. We'll um, save that for the end. Save it for the end. That's probably a good idea. Drink um, I'm a senior fellow at the Atlantic, Sound, at the Atlantic Council, and I was formerly the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy. Uh, but more importantly than any of that, I am a proud native of Cleveland, Ohio. Grew up on, uh, grew up on 163rd Street, went to St. Pat's, and uh, then went to Ignatius. And uh, I'm just uh, super excited to be back, and uh, it's always a pleasure to see uh, what's going on in Cleveland, and uh, I, I really look forward to the discussion, and I'm, I'm sort of humbled. I feel like I was trying to come up with an analogy for my position on this panel, and the only thing I could come up with is I'm sort of like Paul McDonald, and that um, the two people to my right are, are like Bernie Kozar and Brian Seip, and I'm sort of stuck in the middle without, you know, without much of a career, but um, so it's a, it's a pleasure to be up here with you guys, and uh, I, I look forward to the discussion. Thanks. Joe, Joe, you're too humble. Uh, there, there are more stories that are coming up. Uh, I'm Jane Campbell, and I had the privilege to be the mayor of Cleveland. Uh, and I am right now uh, serving as the director of the Policy and Strategic Partnership Office for the National Development Council, which is a national organization dedicated to community and economic development by working on strategic partnerships, uh, small business lending, public-private partnerships, economic development financing, and affordable housing. And so I have the opportunity to be on this distinguished panel because we're looking at how does renewable energy and sustainable development relate to not only preserving communities but also preserving the national security. And so I then get to turn it over to <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Uh, my name is Jim Jones. I, um, I spent 40 years as a United States Marine. Uh, I, I was lucky to be the Commandant of the Marine Corps. I served as four years as the Commander of uh, NATO. And uh, I was uh, President Obama's National Security Advisor for his first two years in office. And let's see what else. Um, I'm a proud American and a big fan of the Cleveland Cavaliers. You may be, you may be pandering, but we'll take it. Uh, um, I want to stick. It's a cheap line. No, but, you know. no, we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, I want to stay with you, General. Uh, when we talk about advanced energy and national security. Uh, what exactly are we talking about? Uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, fuel sources? Are we talking about grid security? Are we talking about all of the above? Well, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to also just add a little bit. I'm, I'm the chairman of the board of the Atlantic Council. And um, the Atlantic Council of the United States has been around since about 1961. 
and it was formed after World War II, obviously. But it was essentially a Cold War organization that was designed to keep the transatlantic dialogue alive between us and uh, the free part of, uh, of Europe. Um, when the Berlin Wall came down, the, the mission of the Atlantic Council was called into question. And about uh, 10 years ago, we decided to um, rebrand the Atlantic Council. And we, we are now, I think, the fastest growing think tank uh, in the United States. Um, we have geographical diversity. We have centers for just about every geographical uh, part of our world. And we have functional centers like cybersecurity, energy, uh, and um, resilience and, and items like that that don't have a particular geographic connotation but are nonetheless extremely important. Um, and uh, we are at, we're here in Cleveland to talk principally about energy and our energy futures um, because the energy center uh, in the uh, Atlantic Council is a very vibrant organization. The Atlantic Council uh, has a global energy forum, for example, once a year in the United Arab Emirates, a global energy uh, uh, meeting that attracts uh, ministers of energy from all over the world. So this is a, this is a big deal. And, and Cleveland has been um, at the forefront of most of everything that's happened in the United States uh, from an industrial standpoint and is uh, leading the way in terms of future potential, whether it, it's uh, wind farms offshore, whether it's uh, 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 the tremendous leaps that the, the country has made in terms of um, cyber, I'm sorry, in terms of um, uh, freeing ourselves from the dependence on uh, foreign energy. Uh, as a result of our technical discoveries, generated mostly, I might say, by the private sector. Um, I do come from Washington, and one of the great, greatest definitions of Washington's that I've ever heard is that Washington is that very special city where people can stroll down Lover's Lane holding their own hands. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Washington's important, and um, we have to, uh, on, on the energy sector, uh, to Tony's question, the energy sector is an important part of our future national security policy and our advanced energy programs, uh, whether they're being developed in Washington or more importantly by the private sector, are extremely important to the future of this nation. So I'm, I'm extremely uh, proud to be here with uh, my uh, co-panel members to talk about not only energy but our foreign policy in the future. Joe, uh, talking about national security, you know, maybe it's a misconception, but if I were to think of just military plus clean energy, uh, something doesn't compute for me. It doesn't seem like a natural marriage or a natural connection that the military would be thinking about clean energy. Um, uh, tell me why that's wrong. Tell me that that's a misconception. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a natural question, right? Because it doesn't seem like it's, a, it's an easy fit, and it's not intuitive, necessarily. But the fact is that, that, that energy is critical to the military mission. And not only that, it's critical to national security. I mean, we're in a competitive world, right? 
and that competition plays out in, in terms of military capability, it plays out in innovation and trade, it plays out in our diplomacy, and we're in a world that the energy system is rapidly transforming. And the United States has got to figure out what role it wants to play in that transformation. And the choices we make, uh, there are risks and opportunities. And uh, the risks are that we lose ground against our competitors and our adversaries on each of those fronts, whether it be capability or whether it be diplomacy or whether it be job creation in our economy. Uh, and the opportunities are just the opposite, that we can assert ourselves in that market and be the beneficiary of a lot of change that's happening. But we've got to make some pretty clear decisions about where we want to be and what we want to do. Now, with respect to military capability specifically, you know, it's, it's not intuitive, but when you think about um, what we do uh, and what the military does, and, and I've never served, but in general can, can, uh, can, can expand on this. Um, think about our deployed forces. When we send folks out into Afghanistan and Iraq, one of the most complicated and difficult things we do is to deliver fuel and water to those folks. And the reason why we have to deliver so much fuel is because they use a lot of fuel. And to the extent that we can reduce the amount of fuel that we use, that takes folks off the road who are delivering fuel to our forces. And the more you take people off the road, the less people get shot at. Uh, so military capability really critical. For our installations in the United States, you know, we are, uh, we are under threat. The commercial grid is at risk, from whether it be from weather events or whether it be from cyber actors who are, who are looking for ways to affect our capability, not just our economy, but also our military capability. And advanced energy plays a key role in making sure that even if the grid goes down, the mission stays up. Um, we can talk about it a little bit later, but we are at the, uh, the Cleveland Clinic today. Cleveland Clinic has a mission to be up and running 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, because people depend on that. And so they're looking at ways to improve the way that they use energy and to make themselves more resilient. Same with the military mission. What we do on our bases matters. It matters to the communities. It matters to our our forward deployed forces, and it matters to our ability to defend our country. And so um, when we're thinking about the role that advanced energy can play, we have to think about it in terms of military terms, because we don't have any other choice. Do you think it's a bigger topic, and maybe generally you can address this too, is a bigger topic kind of the um, is, is supplying our forces abroad with logistics and fuel, et cetera, or is, is a bigger issue grid security here at home, or are they, you know, kind of two peas in a pod in terms of security that we need to be worrying about both? No, you have to worry about both, but when you're talking to the, about the military, you're talking about the tooth-to-tail ratio. And, and, and generally, uh, in, in, the, in the past years, the tail has exceeded the tooth ratio by, depending on who you talk to, but by an order of magnitude. So anything you can do to lighten the, the tail ratio to supporting the troops is, is a plus. And we are moving into a very technological world where uh, Marines and soldiers and people on the ground who used to have to carry heavy packs laden with uh, supplies to keep the force uh, re relevant are, are actually being helped by te technological advances uh, such as uh, solar power and lighter batteries and longer longer and batteries that can be recharged by, by solar power and so on and so forth. So 
Um, in, in the armed forces of the United States today, the Navy leads the way in the sense that about 50% of the Navy's power comes from renewable energy. The other services aren't that far behind. They're about 25%, but they're all moving in the same direction because it reduces it, it reduces the tooth, it enhances the I'm sorry, reduces the tail and enhances the tooth. Um, so so that's extremely important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mayor, when we think from a city perspective on, uh, especially from Northeast Ohio, we talk about capacity for manufacturing and we can say we, we have tons of potential to supply solar components. We could convert our factories to supply uh, whatever is needed. Um, do you think we're ready for that or are there things standing in our way from really jumping into clean energy and, and supplying uh, the military on a grand scale or even upgrading our infrastructure? Well, I think there's no question that we are ready for it. The question really is, do we have the policy support to encourage that readiness? We had an opportunity during this visit to meet with several manufacturing uh, entities who are manufacturing parts, who are dealing with wind and dealing with solar, We've got all that capacity here, but what happens in Ohio is that, number one, we don't have a written energy policy for the state of Ohio, and to the extent that we have an energy policy, it's driven by the historical uh, engagement of the public utilities themselves trying to support their existing investment in coal and nuclear, instead of turning around and saying, what are we going to do for the future? Um, someone said, and we've had so many people talking to us, I couldn't even tell you who it was, that one of the most significant things that David Morgan Taylor, who is a longtime venture capitalist in Cleveland, said, if you're not doing something new, you're not going to be making any money and that Cleveland is in a situation where we made a 100-year bet on a 60-year car, uh, car operation. And so we really have to be ready for the future. We, we didn't capture the technology bubble in the way that several other communities did and the way we would want to, but this new energy opportunity is here. It's right there for us. Um, already we've got the wind energy out on the eight-mile crib, um, and that thing has taken nearly 10 years to get sighted and put together, and it's like, I mean, really, give me a rest. It's eight miles away. You think it's going to destroy your view? How many of you all can see eight miles? Hello. Um, no hands are up. And, and no hand, nobody put their hands up. So the point being that we could be the only community that has our own grid, that we have our own energy. And so when we're living in a situation where I was mayor during the blackout, I remember that extremely well. When all of a sudden there was no power from New York to Chicago, and we were trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And we had we thought we were great. We had redundant power, but they won't both went to the same power plant. If in fact we had redundant power that went to wind, uh, 
then lo and behold, even if the grid went down, we could have energy and we could be the only city that has that kind of backup. So there's a huge opportunity. Joe, uh, what's the holdup to upgrade the grid? Like, I mean, I, this this seems to be kind of a slam dunk. That yes, it makes sense that we should have a power grid that doesn't isn't susceptible to huge blackouts uh, across uh, a large swath of the country, or could be hacked, or whatever. What's the holdup? Let me answer a different question first, and then I'll go back. Yeah. Yeah. I would like you know I want to build on what Jane said because we've had some really amazing meetings here in Cleveland. We've met some really interesting people and I don't know that everyone realizes the infrastructure you have around town that's part of this economy, that's part of this new energy economy. We were out at a company today called Talon. They make support systems for, for commercial solar panels and they make, they make fixtures for LED lamps. This is a company that has 75 employees out on East 188th and they would like to do more business. They would like to have 150 employees or 300 employees. They need the policy supports that Jane talked about and some other things in order to make that happen. You have other companies. You have, uh, you have Eaton does some amazing things in the energy space. Amazing things. Lincoln Electric, very, very active in the, in the wind industry. They make consumables for the wind industry. There are companies here that are part of this economy, and we have to figure out ways, policy-wise and other, to, to support their growth and their ability to compete in this new marketplace. Um, now to the to the grid. I mean, it's a complicated question. I mean, we have a lot of entrenched interests, a lot of uh, a lot of some capital in a, in a system that uh, that served us quite well over a long period of time, and now we're moving on. And we have to figure out a way at the state level and at the federal level to 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 make sure our rules don't preclude us from competing with the future. Right? That we're not tied so much to our past that we can't see the future. We don't want to write off all these people who are very very hard to establish. Uh, and, and provide for us, but like we have to look and see what's next. And I think uh, I think we can talk about regulations, and we can talk about federal disinvestment in R and D. We can talk about uh, a policy framework in Ohio, which seems to shift requirements on folks and 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 not provide stability that the investment community needs in order to in order to build on this economy. But uh, there's a lot of factors. We could we could be here all night if I want to describe how how, how we need to redo the grid, general. So we have a bigger problem that I think everybody in this room should be aware of, and, and that is that to this day, regardless of our, the reversal of our fortunes in energy, we do not have a national energy policy. And I want to pause to make, make sure that you understand that we do not have a national energy policy. We have a, we have a, we have a Department of Energy that historically has always been the Department of Nuclear Energy. The President of the United States has never appointed the Secretary of Energy as a single point of effort on national energy policy. And as such, we produce no documents that reflect our strategy, our, our national strategy. It's something that Americans don't know, and it's something that maybe even more importantly, our allies don't know. But it's extremely important that we change this because energy and, and, and the position that the United States now finds itself in as a result of private sector technology and private sector investment with absolutely no intrusion by the government, which is sometimes a good thing, 
has really reversed our position in the world from being one of dependence to almost one of independence. And, and so the world looks at the United States now in a completely different light because of our, of our technological breakthroughs generated by the private sector. But I think one of the big things that's missing in terms of fully incorporating energy into our national security strategy, and, and it is as important in my view as anything we do in the Department of Defense, anything we do in the Department of the Treasury, anything we do in the State Department, the national energy strategy of the United States must be comprehensively explained and, and must be doctrinally embedded in our overall national security uh, policy and our national security policy. And if, if we don't do that, thank you, if we don't do that, we are missing a tremendous opportunity to lead globally uh, in, in everything from coal to wind and everything in between. The Department of Energy, it's important for, for you to know this, the Department of Energy is, has been always the Department of Nuclear Energy. And no president has ever designated the Secretary of Energy to be the secretary of the entire spectrum. And that is, is something that could be easily remedied with a stroke of the pen. President Trump is generally amenable to signing things. Uh, if, he would, if he wanted to do something that would really help the security of the United States, he would designate the Secretary of Energy as the single point of contact for the entire energy potential. And, and by the way, the good news is we have more potential on energy than almost any country in the world. Do you think that's not been codified because of entrenched interests? Or is there a reason we don't have a national energy policy, as you say, or, or given the energy secretary a, a wider berth for, for action? I, I wish I could answer that question. My, when I left the White House in 2010 in my last meeting with President Obama, he asked me if there was something that we should have done while I was there that we didn't do. And I said, thank you for asking me. And the answer is yes. The answer is that energy has to be part of our national security strategy. You need to have a national security senior director in the, NS, in the National Security Council. You, need, you should, I think, designate the Secretary of Energy as the Secretary for all of energy. And you should put out annual national secure, national energy strategy so that people can read it, both classified and, of course, there'll be an unclassified version. But the, 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 the tremendous opportunity that we have to counterbalance um, countries like Russia, Iran, and others that have energy but use it as a weapon to force behavior into the countries that are dependent on them we have the opportunity to provide benevolent leadership and assistance in, let's say, the emerging continent of Africa, which is going to be the dominant continent, just like the Indian con continent is going to be dominant in this century. Uh, we have the opportunity to help developing countries skip the fossil fuel uh, burning stages of their development and, and help them make a technological leap because of the technology we have, which would, would aid you know, 
global warming and all, all, all kinds of things. We have the opportunity to provide benevolent leadership to many countries and to show the world that we are part of this global phenomenon that, that, that treats energy um, and climate change as something that is really serious. And by the way, I include water and energy. And, and the number of countries that don't have access to water is, is staggering. Mm -hmm. And we can do something about that. And I think this is the way that we compete against China and Russia and uh, Iran and, uh, and some of the other countries that use this these technologies as uh, weapons to influence behavior, but for the good of, of the, develop, the developing world and a global community. If we can zoom back in from the big picture to, to the smaller picture, we had talked about examples of uh, you know, manufacturers who want more business, who have the capacity for more business. Um, Mayor, maybe I'll ask you first. You know, there's there's this tendency for the newest gizmos and the best infrastructure to go to wealthier cities. And uh, Cleveland is, it has tons of potential, but what's it gonna take to really capture some capital and capture really the, uh, you know, the attention of leaders in technology or, you know, whatever it may take to make Cleveland a destination and really upgrade what we have here? Well, let, let me sort of, piggyback a little bit on what ge the general said in terms of looking at, at Africa and, and the developing nations and the opportunity for them to deal differently with their energy needs. If you look at what has happened with telephones, they, those countries have gone directly to cell phones, to cell phone service. They didn't put in the old copper wires. Um, and it wasn't because the copper wires were, you know, where we would, went in the low-income area. It was because the technology had gone beyond and, in fact, having cellular service was more efficient, more effective, and it got service more quickly. We have an opportunity, if we think about renewable energy and alternative energy in that same way, that that is a more nimble technology. It has the opportunity to jumpstart some of the set costs that are so significant and begin to have microgrids in various different places. So what does that mean to Cleveland, Ohio? Let's, let's come down back home. I'm, I'm, I'm home, this is all. Um, is we make those kind of things. And we can make those kind of things and we can transport them. We can try them in our own area. We can transport them to the world because this is a community that knows how to make stuff. And we know how to make stuff technologically. We know how to make stuff quickly. We know how to make stuff with high quality. And so there is such an opportunity. Now, one of the their challenges that we have is, okay, let's figure out what are our tools. We just are in the situation in this nation where we have a new incentive program called the Opportunity Zones. And this was put into the tax reform bill amidst a mazillion things. And people are trying to figure out what does it mean. One of the things we learned during this visit is that for wind and solar in particular, they are very capital intensive. And it's possible that those industries, 
which have huge capital intensive needs, could be perfect places for investment in opportunity zones because we have one of the companies we visited today is in a designated opportunity zone. And so one way for them to get patient equity is using this particular program, which is Treasury hasn't even set the rules yet. But it's an opportunity for people to, right now there's $6 billion in unrealized capital gains that people are holding on because the stock market's been great, but they don't want to sell their stock because they don't want to pay the taxes. So this program was designed to create a mechanism for those monies to be encouraged to be invested in our, our lowest income communities, in our distressed areas. So that's one opportunity. A piece of what we're really saying is that we need to be strategic about investing in the whole range of energy. We can't get caught up in, if we don't do coal, we're gonna leave the coal miners behind. We have to say, you know what? There's a certain amount of work that can be done with coal. There are people that are gonna be unemployed. We have an opportunity to retrain them for working in the, in the new energy area. And we need to make a commitment to do that and to engage. We have to it's true, guys, right? And think about it. In Ohio, there's something like 2,000 to 2,500 people who are employed in, in coal, in the coal industry right now. We have an opportunity, there are 51 companies that are directly providing uh, components for wind energy. That could be five times as many people. And so there's a real opportunity, but we have to decide to do it, and then we have to start taking the steps very systematically. Joe, part of events like this and, and programs like yours are to get people thinking about energy in a different way. Do you think we're approaching or even close to a critical mass where people are thinking about energy as a national security concern or bigger than just conversations over coal or oil or? I, I think it, I mean, it's a tough conversation, right? It's a learning curve for everybody. It's not an easy conversation in the Department of Defense to help people understand why this stuff matters. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy anywhere. Uh, it's not easy to make new decisions to do new things. I think that's just a fact of life. Um, I will say that there are a, a couple things about locally here and the opportunities, and Jane, Jane talked about them a little bit. Uh, there's, there's some companies who are really knocking it out of the park, right? There's a company called uh, Energy Focus who, who makes light bulbs, LED bulbs out of solid. They supply hundreds of thousands of LED bulbs that go on Navy ships. For a while, I think they were the only supplier of LED bulbs that went on Navy ships. And not only is that good for Solon and the people working at, at, at Energy Focus, but it's also good for the Navy because those bulbs have, uh, they light our ships better. Uh, sailors, they don't have to change them as often, so you don't put sailors up on ladders in the middle of the ocean, which is uh, sort of not a great idea. Um, they have a lot of benefits. So energy focus coming like that's knocking out of the park. And then we'll talk about an opportunity and, an ad, and, and a competitor, because we talk about risks and opportunities. Transportation. China has made a commitment to new energy vehicles. By next year, 10% of the vehicles sold in China, the government says, are going to be new energy vehicles, means, which means plug-in hybrids or electrics. China's auto market is 25 million cars a year. Ours is about 17 and a half. 
By 2025, they say 20% of the vehicles sold into China are going to be new energy vehicles. Now, China right now is, we have, there, a study came out a couple weeks ago from Bloomberg. There are 385,000 electric buses deployed in the world. 385,000. You know how many are deployed in the United States? 360. Not 360,000, like 360 buses. China is putting 9,500 electric buses into service every week. That's more than we manufacture in a, in a year. So to tie that into Cleveland, we, we, we made cars. We make cars. In fact, as I was doing, I was sitting at my parents' house uh, and surfing the internet and uh, looking for things to talk about here. And on 80th Street, uh, right around the corner, uh, is uh, in 1906, in the turn of the 20th century, there's a company called the Baker Motor Vehicle Company. Made electric vehicles. They supplied the White House with the first fleet of vehicles. They gave Thomas Edison his first electric car. We have a history in this industry, and we, we shouldn't give it up. We need to compete for the jobs and for the industries that our competitors are competing for. But we can't do that unless we get R&D right, unless we're investing, unless we're investing in workforce development, and unless we're investing in, in, in policies, politically investing in policies which are going to make us better in the long run but which might bring with it some short-term change for some of our communities. We need to figure that out. We need to take care of people and not leave them behind, but we need to figure it out because if we're standing still, we're losing. This is well, such you know, a, yeah. Thing I want to say about that is that when you look at how do we deal with things differently, um, we will still have a need for oil. This is the polymer capital of the world in Northeast Ohio. And so the question is, isn't there something better to do with oil than just burn it up in, in combustion to make energy, but to use it for polymer development to build things? And so if you look at, you know, the, some of the problems are people want things to be just the way it always was. And maybe we stop and say, we're going to build a future. We're going to build a future that has an opportunity and an inclusive place for coal miners. We're going to build a future that has an opportunity for oil to make its investment in something that's going to mean even more. And we're going to have an opportunity to have good quality variety of energy in this community and create products that will go to the world. This is such a big topic. We've covered some things. We've not touched on other things. I'd like to open it up for your questions. So if you have a question, you can line up at this microphone here. And while we let people come up, uh, General, I just, I'm curious, where are we in terms of innovation in this space? I mean, is, is the military actively looking into, you know, different forms of energy, cooler types of technology to use what we have? Can you talk a little bit sure. about that? So one of the things I actually was going to say, and I thank you for the question, is because uh, I wouldn't want the audience here to leave here with a sense of gloom and doom, uh, where China and Russia and rising powers are, are concerned. Uh, I'm actually very optimistic about the future of the United States. I think that um, we have uh, the innate built-in capability to be more innovative than anybody else, to do it more quickly. We still produce giant businesses that were formed in our garages. Uh, 
Uh, we have tremendous opportunity for people to rise to incredible uh, heights of success. And I don't think that's replicated anywhere else in the world. My view is that the rest of the world is trying to copy what we've done. And so as long as we understand that and that we don't sit, we don't sit back and we don't take a lesser position and we continue to build on our innovation and creativity, I think we're going to be just fine. But we have to make sure that um, that potential is, is levied and, and the people who have that kind of drive are allowed to succeed. And the only way you do that is in a free market economy. And, and so that's really, really important, I think. Um, China is a, is a competitor. There's no question about that. But when you really think and look at what China is doing, they're just copying what we did in the 20th century. They're, they believe that, that um, having a big army and a big navy and a big air force is really important because we proved that in the 20th century. So they're doing that. They believe that having a space program is important because we did that in the 20th century. They, they believe that it's important to have a strong economy. And on that score, I think they're absolutely right. And what I worry most about uh, in our country is the debt-to-wealth ratio in terms of our national debt. And, and if I were to, to kind of leave you with any kind of concern, is if you don't hear your politicians talking about how they're going to deal with the national debt, then you're talking about the future of the United States here. And that's extremely important. And I don't hear too many politicians talking about it. Um, that worries me a great deal. But um, across all the other spectrum of, of uh, trade, of creativity, of science and technology, we have to make sure that we keep that competitive edge and that the next generations of young Americans who are now graduating from high schools and colleges really understand that Although this is a great country to live in, if you want to keep it that way, you've got to compete in the global arena and you've got to do the, be able to do the right things. And to do that, you have to understand the environment that you're in. doesn't mean there's going to be a world, world war. There's a different kind of war go going on right now, and it's, it's, it's safer. I mean, it's a war of competition. It's a war of ideas. It's a war of uh, economics. Um, it's a cultural uh, challenge. We can, do very, we, can, we can do very well for a long period of time, but we have to recognize the environment we're in, and our future generations have to understand that as they come into the workforce, they have to, do the, they have to understand that, number one, and be willing to participate in the, in the contest. Thank you. First question, yeah. Thank you. This, this question is really for you, General. I think climate in the context of national security first came into the quadrennial defense review, I think in 2006 was the first time. It really hit hard in the 2014 edition. Do you have any concerns about the current edition, I know they changed the name, but the current edition of the QDR uh, going forward? And the reason I ask is I think the military is taking some big leaps, and I think leadership, in developing or at least use of alternative and uh, renewable energy, and I'd like to see that continuing as part of our national defense. Yeah, uh, I think the current leadership in the Defense Department is doing act actually a very, very good job um, on, on, on those matters that you raise. Um, my feeling on, on, on climate change is that, uh, you know, whether you think it's real or whether you think it's not real, you ought to err on the side of safety. 
and you ought to do those things that address the issues because it's good for it's good for everybody. And so, if you're right, you're right, and the, and if you're wrong, you can err on the side of safety. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't I, I I don't favor a declaratory policy of saying that people who think we're in a, a period of climate change are necessarily wrong. I think we should err on the side of safety and do the things that make sense. Thank you. Next question. Yeah, I think this is about as close to a real general as I've been in the last 70 years. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, General Jones could be my second favorite uh, general if we had time to talk. Uh, I was moved by your straightforwardness, your lack of bullshit, and, uh, <coughs> uh, but I was disturbed by your uh, insistence that we keep a competitive edge. And the gentleman from Case... Uh, kept mentioning China and its automobiles and so on. <coughs> uh, this race began fighting its tribal wars, you know, a couple of hundred thousand years ago. And we're still fighting tribal wars. Uh, <coughs> China is a tribe. Uh, Russia is a tribe. We're a tribe. <coughs> so what I would like to hear from the general, I would hope, <coughs> is in terms of facing the future with a competitive edge. How can we face the future with a cooperative edge, General? Thank you for the question. Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, and I think the United States has demonstrated, uh, particularly since the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall, um, a, a, a desire to uh, cooperate uh, with our former enemies and our friends and allies. No other country in the, on this planet has been more engaged in uh, cooperation than the United States. Um, and I, you know, I think that, that where Russia is today is, um, is purely rests on the shoulders of Vladimir Putin. After the Berlin Wall came down, we did everything in the world to try to help Russia pick itself up from the loss of their empire. Um, and that they now have a leader who is, who is um, interested in, uh, in rebuilding or reforming some version of the Cold War is absolutely uh, absurd. It's historically false, and it, it endangers the world. That's not our fault. That's his fault. Um, on, on, um, in other areas of the world with uh, North Korea, you know, we've we've been we've been we've tried to do everything with North Korea um, in a cooperative way to see if they wanted to make their country into a better place as a result of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Until recently, they've rejected and cheated at every instance. Um, and China, I, I think I think China, fr fr frankly. Uh, on the one hand, spouts a, a policy of uh, peace and tranquility and friendly competition. But on the other hand, if you look at what's going on in the South China Sea, where they're building military bases that prevent the peaceful traffic of, uh, uh, of trade and industry, uh, that is inimical to our best interests. So I, I, I don't feel the United States has to apologize uh, for not being cooperative. I think we've been extremely cooperative. And frankly, the world needs the United States to be cooperative in, in the foreseeable future. 
I don't think we're heading towards World War III with anybody, but I think we are in a competitive environment with regard to um, international leadership and influence. And we have to understand the rules of the game and we have to be willing to engage. If you don't want to engage, and you're happy with being number two or number three, then just sit back and you know watch the movies and go to baseball games and you'll be fine. What we really want to know is if General Jones is your number two yeah, general, number one. Walter, who's your number one? All right. Well, I don't want to leave you. the impression that I thought that engagement is a mistake uh, either. I, look, engagement's critical, right? U.S. engagement in the world is critical. Our alliances are essential. So building our alliances is critical. And also, I'll say this, agreements, agreements are important. And uh, with respect to Paris, our, our decision to withdraw from that agreement, I think was a mistake. It was a mistake not just because if you care about climate, but if you care about, but if you care about your alliances and you care about what your allies care about. It's not just about the United States, it's about the world, and it's about maintaining those relationships and building those relationships which are critical to our success and to the world's success and to, and to avoiding conflict. So all of what you say is is is, is echo. talking about our success, our world's success, and so on. It's not gonna work. I'm using the royal hour. Thank you. So it's all of our. You made your point. Let's. Thank you, sir. We got it. We got a lot of questions. Next question, please. Um, given that um, recently Big Energy has been able to get the President of the United States to actually consider subsidizing the nuclear energy in industry, which seems like a form of corporate welfare, um, that kind of power. Um, is really restrictive as far as what we can do in a real sense. I thought it would be interesting to have some discussion about what kind of local opportunities we have at Cleveland Public Power because we are outside of that corporate powerhouse. Want me to take the Mayor, public Mayor, power? <laughs> that, that, that's probably mine. Um, well, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we've been able to move so far with the offshore wind development is because we have Cleveland Public Power as an alternative distribution source. And so I think, you know, as the Atlantic Council was kind of looking around, one of the things that happens in Washington is people have a lot of inside the beltway conversations where everybody looks at each other and talks to each other and thinks great thoughts. And if you really want to influence public policy, you've got to get out of the beltway into the real places and figure out what's going on, what's real and what's possible and what's op an opportunity. And that's why we're here uh, in Cleveland. And so you're absolutely right that Cleveland Public Power gives us a different tool um, in terms of that's why we could talk realistically about being the only community that could be off the grid. We could transfer, uh, you know, if, if something happened, we could transfer to the Cleveland Public Power lines and support the community. 
Does so that mean that, does that mean that uh, a decentralized grid is more secure than a centralized grid? Absolutely. Um, a, a decentralized grid gives you more opportunities to have independence and flexibility. Um, when one of the things there's conversation about, you know, what they call microgrid, and so you can su support uh, an area, um, whether that's as a backup or as eventually a full opportunity. So one of the things that people can do here is to tell that story directly to our public officials. Um, we had an interesting dinner the other night with State Senator Matt Dolan, um, who was talking about the work that he's doing uh, to try to adjust the, the wind set aside. Um, there was a late at night you know, amendment thrown into a budget bill to make unrealistic set-asides for wind. And he is determined to do that. Now, he's a Republican, and he's determined to do this in a bipartisan way. We can't let energy sufficiency and security become a partisan issue. It's got to be a community-based issue. So that's why we're here to tell that story. Thank and you. thank you for bringing it up and bringing up the Cleveland Public Power aspect. Next question, please. First of all, thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, I was curious because one of the points that I heard mentioned multiple times was that America is at the peak of innovation. We are creating the most technology, whether it's public or university partnership. And locally here in K um, Cleveland, you can think of Case Western, technology such as microgrids, smart cities, internet of things, all these different solutions, even wind and solar energy that are supposed to kind of lead us to a new tomorrow. But I ask you guys, how do you truly see us taking this from you know, science projects that professors used to you know, get more grant money and kind of propel their careers to truly something that will make an impact in society? Good question. Joe? So what I would say when it comes to, I mean, clearly we need to continue to invest in R&D, but I, I, would, I would say as a, as a starting point is that it already is big business. The global uh, renewable energy infrastructure business is a $300 billion business. Every auto manufacturer worth their salt is making electric vehicles. This is big business. Battery innovation is, is proceeding rapidly, rapidly. And battery prices are dropping precipitously. This is going to change the world. And so what I'd argue is that it is big business already, but it, the, the cycle of change is so fast now. The innovation cycle is so fast that we can't rest on where we are today. And like you said, we need to invest in places like Case Western University, which does some of the best work in the country on this issue. And we need to make sure that we continue to stay at the cutting edge. We're going to go really fast. Just like, the, just like the media cycle keeps going faster and faster and faster, so does innovation. And so we need to do all we can to keep up. So I think it already is. It's already here, whether we know it or not, or whether we're willing to admit it or not. But it's going to keep changing, and we need to, we need to change with it. And we need to be flexible enough and, and assertive enough in that space to, to actually uh, make sure that those benefits accrue to us in, in communities like Cleveland and Northeastern Ohio. At the same time, we have yeah. to make sure that the development is inclusive development because it won't, it won't work um, if it's just a scientist or just an entrepreneur. It has to be an opportunity that flows across the community. And really, when we went and visited this factory in, uh, in North Collinwood, in, 
the workforce was very diverse, although I did give them a hard time because there weren't enough women on the floor. Um, and I, she did give me a hard time. I, <laughs> right? I, you know, they were saying, you know, we got these great blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but they're all guys. Now, you know, there were some look like you and some look like me. Um, and so the owner kind of took it to heart and he said, well, now we do have girls in the office. I said, not, not enough. Um, and then he saw a woman who was in quality control and he said, remember, there, I found her. So remember, we have a story to tell about inclusive engagement. And in, if we're not intentional about being inclusive, it's not gonna happen. But the opportunities are absolutely there. And the fact of the matter is, this business, as Joe says, is taking off. And either it's gonna take off here or it's gonna take off somewhere else. Um, the other thing we, we have talked about, we haven't talked about tonight, but is a fact is that publicly owned companies that have shareholders, um, the shareholders are requiring that the companies use alternative energy. And so there are companies in Ohio that are bringing alternative energy in from out of state because the capacity's not here in Ohio, because they're doing it to satisfy their shareholders. So there are a number of ways to create uh, pressure, and shareholder pressure is, is yet another way. And so we have to really open our minds and grab this opportunity and say, okay, look, we can create jobs, we can create opportunities, we can create a new future. Thank you. Next question. Yes, ma'am. I want to just start by uh, referencing what the general mentioned about the Department of Energy and national energy policy. Uh, that organization you mentioned, it was focused on nuclear energy. Actually, it's focused on nuclear weapons production in large part. And to illustrate that, there's now a plan for uh, our nuclear weapons systems to be redeveloped from top to bottom at well over a trillion dollars uh, as a minimum estimate. And looking at the national debt and the problems that you mentioned about this is part of the problem of looking to the military for security. In fact, the military is eating up so much of our money in this country, our tax money, that we are neglecting a lot of the things that are ne we need for our security for the people of our country. So I am troubled by your emphasis on security in terms of the military. And in terms of its role in the world, I think people are very much aware that the invasion of Iraq and many of our incursions around the world have not led to greater security or cooperation. Now, when I came to this meeting, I thought what you would talk about with security uh, and threats to security from climate change and energy were things like what was going to happen around the world in terms of the populations that are most at risk from drought, 
from rising sea levels and what those issues are about security. So my question is, can you address some of those issues, uh, not just about our military security? Thank you. Uh, General, you wrote the report on Iraq, so I don't know if we want to get into that. Uh, you did, right, the, the review report of the Iraq en engagement. Right. But I'm curious, uh, what would you say to that, to, to an, uh, another kind of national security threat in terms of climate change? Sure. Um, so it's a little unusual to be sitting here as a retired general officer and to, to tell you that I believe that the future security of the United States is much more than, a, than anything about the military. Uh, I think it is much more comprehensive. I think it's about our economy. I think it's about our energy. It's about our ability to, to operate in the cyber world. Um, I think it's about our culture. Um, I think it's about a lot of things. And the difference between the 20th century and the 21st century Whereas in the 20th century, the national energy, national security was primarily the Defense Department, the National Security Council, and a little bit of the State Department. Everybody else was on the outside. The 21st century, if you're the President of the United States and you don't have the Secretary of the Treasury or the Secretary of Energy or the Secretary of Commerce, uh, as well as the other, the other principal agencies at the table, you're not really addressing national security. National security has changed into a much broader discussion and many more people have to be at the table. Having said that, um, I do believe that um, in our last periods of engagement, my, my biggest lesson about the 20th century is the fact that uh, if, you, if the United States is interested in making change in the world, um, it's more than about the military. And if you look at Afghanistan, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, uh, to a certain extent, Iran, and Libya, um, you're looking at an engagement strategy that is flawed. Flawed because it relies on the kinetic strength of the American armed forces, followed by nothing. If we learn one thing in World War II, at the end of World War II, is that economic, uh, military power l alone will not change the world. Um, the thing that worked for us in World War II and then maybe even in South Korea was that we applied military power, we achieved the results we wanted, and then we applied economic reconstruction and governance and rule of law. And in, in Afghanistan, we forgot that. In Iraq, we definitely forgot that. And in Libya, we went in and flattened the country without even thinking about aiding civilians who were killed or wounded innocently. Um, and so my, my life lesson is that if, if the United States wants to engage in the world and you want to change behavior somewhere, you really ought to have a much more comprehensive plan than just using the military. Because what happens after military victory is as important as, as the, the victory itself. And if you don't have a game plan, whether it's national or international, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be successful. 
So that's, I think that's, uh, you know, extremely important and is almost a dogma that we should relearn from the lessons of, uh, of the last century. Um, but uh, having said that, I think that, that the United States is still um, widely admired, uh, although we're going through some difficult times on the economic issues uh, around the world, but it's still, you know, the, the country that people want uh, to be associated with. And particularly, if I could because of this audience, but just emphasize the fact that it's not because we're militarily powerful, more powerful than anybody else, but it's because of our, our private sector. The, the private sector of the United States is admired anywhere in the world. Um, I, I travel all over the world. I travel to the Middle East. I travel to Africa. I meet with heads of state. I meet with ministers of defense. Uh, and, and they all say the same thing. Whether you're in Africa, they say, why aren't you here? Why aren't you competing with China? And many times, we have to say it's because your government is corrupt and we can't come here. Um, but the example of the private sector of the United States is globally dominant. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And, and we need to harness the kind of the combination of not relying on the military to beat someone into submission and then do nothing, as opposed to taking uh, a stance with our friends and allies, uh, making the changes that need to be made where they need to be made, and then helping people back on their feet uh, economically and in terms of the kind of governance and rule of law that uh, they want to follow. Uh, there's, it's a big debate right now. If you look at the continent of Africa, you look at uh, almost, I think they have 56 countries on the continent, but by far the largest continent in the world. Um, you have a series of, uh, actually globally, we're facing a series of the rise, what I call the rise of the autocrats, uh, starting with Vladimir Putin, the, uh, the uh, premier of China has arranged it so now he's elected for life. Uh, you have uh, in Syria uh, a leader that looks like he's going to make it through the, uh, the tough times. You look in, at Korea, you have uh, uh, Kim Il-jong Il who uh, has no intention of giving up power. And you look at various countries in Africa who, whose leaders participated in rewriting constitutions, and when the date came for them to step down, are not stepping down. So the rise of the autocrat is, is back here, and here we are talking about democracy and, and values and uh, things like that. And I think it's gonna be a, re it's, it's gonna be a real challenge. I, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that there have to be more consequences than we're willing to impose on these autocrats. There has to be more consequences internationally for a guy like Vladimir Putin um, when he does the things he does. And, but, the, but the global community, if you look at our European friends and allies, particularly in Western Europe, they want to trade with Iran. You know, they think if we trade with them, they'll see, that they'll see their way. That's just nonsense. They don't. Dictators want one thing. They want to survive. And, and I think we have to we have to take a stand and we have to do the things we have to do for the right reasons. Next question, yeah. 
actually have two questions. First is local. Really quick, please. It deals with the wind farm on the lake and the clean energy it was produced. Was that a sole source deal to Cleveland Public Power or was it put on the grid as clean energy to be sold to the highest bidder? My other question deals with the, electron the electric grid in this country, actually the three grids, the eastern, the western, and the Texans. It is subject to natural disasters, man-made disasters, uh, in anywhere from storms to the volcano in Hawaii that is threatening the geothermal to an EMP attack. What is being done to harden the grid, especially the transformers, to prevent them from being destroyed by a massive uh, power surge uh, slash power deletion slash Thank you. kicking back in? Yeah. <laughs> Mayor, do you have an answer to the first part? Um, I, I can tell you what I know about the wind farm. Um, and the, the wind farm has, at this point, the ability to generate more power than they have currently uh, got contracts to use. Right. And so it's not a matter of it being a limited, uh, a limited quantity. The reason it is not only being used by Cleveland Public Power, but it's being used by a few other entities the, in fact, it would be more effective if there were more power agreements, but some of the traditional public utilities have been unwilling mm -hmm. to purchase power. So it's not, you know, it, it's not like we've got this harsh resource and we're trying to, you know, parse it out. We've got this incredible resource, and the more we use it, the more we're going to be able to develop because the marginal cost of additional turbines is substantially smaller. Right. Now, the question, let me talk about the coast. As some of you know, I worked with Mary Leandrew from Louisiana, mm -hmm. um, and so I know a little bit about coastal restoration and uh, the challenges in the, and the Gulf Coast in Louisiana and Texas is a working coast. It, it really is... Um, Harden, you know, hardening the coast, and so to protect the uh, the energy that comes in through the coast has been a significant challenge, and something that there has been enormous investment that has gone in, and so you you kind of have to work um, with both hands because you're trying to create hardened uh, opportunities to preserve the energy that's coming in uh, while trying to reduce the amount of energy that's used and so that you don't have the level of coastal erosion. I mean, Louisiana is losing the equivalent, they've, they've lost the equivalent of the size of Rhode Island um, and they're losing a football field an hour of land. I mean, this is, this is not a, an insignificant problem, and now we're beginning to see it along the East Coast. And look at what's going on in Puerto Rico and the concerns there. So it argues not just for investing in the existing grid, but be cre creating alternative mechanisms, which gets us back to the mm -hmm. microgrid and variety of opportunities to use different ways to get energy. Thank you. Please. Um, 
I have a question and a comment. Uh, my question is with California uh, getting ready to mandate uh, that all new construction have solar, how long will it be before the price really starts to drop? I know what Germany did, uh, you know, their widespread use of solar panels has brought the price way down. And I also, I do community outreach for the Cuyahoga County Department of Sustainability. If you're interested in getting solar power in the home, we're doing informational meetings on Wednesday, June 27th at 5.30 at uh, the Maple Heights Senior Center on Libby Road and on the west side here at the Lakewood Public Library on June 28th, Thursday at 6.30. Take about an hour and a half. You can learn all about it without any sales pitch. Thank you. So, thank you so, so much. Uh, so I'll speak to the, the price of solar. The, I mean, Cal, I'm aware of the California law. It's going to mandate uh, uh, that photovoltaics be placed on residential homes. Look, the price of solar is already cheap. Large power purchase agreements for, for photovoltaic, for solar-produced power, are competitive in many, many markets. It's, very, it's, it's cheap. Panel costs are dropping through the basement, um, and it is very, very competitive. So um, today, uh, solar competes on, on price in many, many markets. In fact, in the California market, because of the way some of the, 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 the vagaries of the California market, there's actually a negative pricing. Sometimes solar is not, sometimes energy is actually free on the grid. I mean, there are times a day when, when you're paying people to take energy. It is, uh, so solar's become quite competitive and quite cheap, and I, I think it's a, it's a question of, of market mechanisms, really, to get it into market, like financing and, and opportunities for people, because it's capital intensive, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not something you can go out. You, not everybody has, has thousands of dollars to put solar panels on their roofs, but doesn't mean it's not competitive over the lifespan of the of the power. Very very competitive. Thank you. If you uh, there are handouts up here on the table. Oh, okay. Thank Great. Thank, thank you. you very much. Next question. We we've gone long. We'll try to get to everybody. Yep. I just have a quick question. Uh, it's for the general. Uh, general, you mentioned that uh, when you spoke with President Obama before you left, uh, you said we should have a robust uh, national energy policy. In your view, uh, what exactly would that look like? I'm sorry? In your view, what exactly would a national robust energy policy look like? Um, well, first of all, I think it would call for a reorganization of the energy department, um, which is long overdue. Um, and it should, it should embrace the, the, the total of the energy community, everything from coal to, to wind and everything in between. Um, I, think, I think it's in our national interest to have uh, a more focused uh, center for dealing with our energy issues. And uh, we're, the United States is blessed. We have a little bit of everything. And, and we should recognize that. And, and we should come up with uh, national policies that um, um, can be explained to our public as to what it is we're trying to do, what's the direction we're going into. Uh, and, and explain to, uh, from a leadership position, to our friends and allies across the world. Uh, the fact that we don't have that is, I think, a big omission in our overall kit bag in terms of global engagement. Thank you. Just very quickly, uh, so as we move more people to um, solar, hopefully, and as it becomes more economically um, 
feasible for people who can afford it? How do we make sure that poor people aren't left behind holding the bill, especially when it comes to places like CPP? And we still have to support that infrastructure that's been built up over decades. So as much as I am a big fan of the free market and everything, what policy do you suggest to address that to make sure that we don't have poor people getting left behind in this energy? That is a, that is a, that's a totally legitimate and good question. I mean, what you do when you bring in new technologies is sometimes you leave large assets that are stranded and the people who can't move to new technologies and, and put solar panels in this case on their roof are left maybe paying the bill for a, for a large stranded infrastructure that sits there. That is a question of public policy and we need to grapple with that and figure out how we're going to deal with that so the people that are least able, least able to pay those bills and maybe most able, mo most need uh, what the future offers, that they're not stuck holding the bag. And I, that, is a, that is a legitimate question. You need to grapple with that by market market rules. You need to make sure you get your prices right. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of market mechanisms that get set through the Public Service Commission and, or the Public Utilities Commission in Ohio. And, and that's something the policymakers need to grapple with because that's a, that's, a totally, that's a great question. It's a legitimate issue. We need to figure it out. Multifamily housing is a, is, a, is a challenge too. How do you get those people to be able to participate in, in some of what's going on in, the, in, the, in changing energy markets? There's some new financing mechanisms, PACE, I don't know if you're familiar with the PACE program. There's some new market mechanisms that are being put in place that are going to help people do these sorts of things, commercial customers and people who own large multifamily houses, uh, multifamily buildings. But uh, we, it's a great question. And there is some, ex there's some uh, examples in the Public Utilities Commission where there has been, um, like with telephone service, there's a support for lifeline telephone service if you look on your bill. There's, you know, everybody who has a telephone bill pays a little bit to uh, support people who don't have access. So there, there's, this is not a brand new idea no. to begin to make sure that the, that nobody gets left behind, but it has to be an intentional idea. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a good point. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having this conversation. Um, Jane Campbell, my question uh, is, has to do with some, a comment that you made uh, you said that you, instead of oil companies burning uh, randomly their oil, uh, they should be using their energy environmentally, sound, soundly. And my question is, are the oil companies and the energy companies ready to be able to use their energy in a sound environmental way? I don't see much of that. Well, look, this is, there, there's a piece of the market here. And so the question is not whether people are ready, but where's the market? Um, we are really the International Polymer Center in Northeast Ohio. And polymers, people don't think that polymers come from oil, but they do. And it's an alternative use of the oil. So basically, if you have a product, your goal is to sell it and to sell it for the highest price. And right now, the easiest way and the highest price is to just sell it for combustion and energy and uh, so you burn it up. But as the market gets more of the alternative energy sources in it at reasonable rates, then in fact, the polymers, development of polymers and that growth will want that oil. 
And so it, it really is, it, it, there's two ways to go at it. You can go at it in a regulatory manner or you can go at it as a market development. And so what I think we're talking about is that you really have to go both ways. You have to create the market that is an alternative market and people have to be able to see it and understand it. Most people, when you talk to them, they don't, you know, if you're not in the middle of all this mess, you don't know that plastics and polymers come from the same base, that the oil that you build and burn and put in your gas comes from. And so that's partly why the Atlanta Council is here, because this is an educational process to get people to say, oh, okay, there's different ways to go at it. So I have a, I'm an optimist. <laughs> and, and I want to tell you, I just have to tell you one story about this lady who came up here and talked, Nina McClellan. She's also an optimist. When 30 years ago, she came to my house, I had just had a baby, and she planted a pink rose. And she said, this you will have for your future. And that little girl graduated from medical school two weeks ago, Nina. And that pink rose is still blooming. Well, I was at a party in the 70s when you we were graduating from the University of Michigan. And it was an all-women's feminist party. And <laughs> so I'm still remembering those great days. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Very, very quick. Uh, last, last question, please. No, I'm sorry. Okay, this is uh, along the same lines uh, with your last response. So the scientists have told us that we shouldn't go past 300, 350 parts per million of carbon for a stable climate. Last month we hit 410. We're not supposed to go over two degrees Celsius from the Industrial Revolution, we're, all, we're already at 1.5 degrees. Right. I'm very concerned that you are talking about oil because oil, the oil that we get now is only through fracking. The conventional uh, easy deposits are gone. Fracking requires or involves tremendous release of methane, which is 80 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than carbon in the short term. And then after it's finished being methane, it just turns into carbon. So then it's not as powerful as carbon. It is carbon. Right. And to talk about um, polymers and oil as a important part of our future, to me, is distressing because we're at a crisis. In America, we, we don't treat it as the crisis it is. We know it's there. We talk about it like it's some inconvenience and somebody else is going to take care of it. We are at a crisis. Or do you not agree with that statement? Thank you for your All question. Right. I, I agree that we're at a public health crisis. Yeah. Um, and and the, the issue is, you can't take anything out of context, and maybe it's partly because I'm in politics, and so I'm used to, you try to get done what you can do. And, you know, it would be, sometimes you wanna say, if I just, you know, ran the world, and I didn't have to deal with everybody else's opinion and everybody else's concern, 
I could do it this way. But that's not reality. And so a piece of what I'm saying is that as we look at an alternate, an, an all-inclusive energy future, there will be more understanding uh, as we have alternative sources of energy of the risk and the externality uh, risks that come from the use of fossil fuels. And I believe that that will go down. Will it go down fast enough? Not as fast as I want it to go down, but it, here's, here's, here's just who I am. We could say, I want to ban fossil fuels right now, and we would be out of the conversation because we wouldn't, what happens in, in, in the public discourse is you have people on either end, you know, people who say climate change isn't real. Like anyone with the very most modicum of ability to look around sees that that's not true. But then you have people who say, we just have to immediately ban the use of fossil fuels altogether both of those sides are out of the conversation. And so I just work on how do you build a consensus in the middle and how do you start building it forward. And it is absolutely important that people raise the alarm in a broad and clear and important way. We had a fascinating conversation at the Cleveland Clinic with which included some of the healthcare providers talking, and we were saying to them, what can you do to help us raise this issue by having people understand the health benefit, or uh, health risks of, you know, the, the biggest reason that kids in the Cleveland Public Schools miss school is because of asthma. And that is not because it's an inherited condition. It is because the air quality is not good. And there's, was it you that was telling about the uh, app? Somebody oh, yes. that, that you can now get an app that says, look at your air quality. You just smoked two cigarettes today. And so we, we, have, to do, we have to do all of it in order to move the process forward. We have gone super long. Thank you all for hanging in there. This has been fascinating. Thank you to the panel. Have a great night.